we are up to Deuteronomy. We're up to the fifth book of the Bible, fifth talk of the series. Uh, episode one, we had this, um, this introduction to God, who is a great guy, lives in a good relationship with his people in this great place. But then episode two, we got to the fact that there's also a bad guy who sells a lie that turns people against God. And so the people get corrupted, which, which breaks up this beautiful trio of God and his people and his place. Uh, and then in episode three, we saw that despite this corruption of people and the, the dysfunction in the relationship, that God not only chooses a group of them, he actually commits himself, contracts himself, covenants himself to that little group of people in a bid to bring back all of humanity into that sort of old Edenic blessing from the start. And then episode four last week, we saw God playing the long game so that everyone will remember, so that his people will be able to trust him when the going gets tough. He waits until Israel grows in number, waits until they're suffering pretty hard, enslaved in Egypt, and then dramatically rescues them from slavery, claiming them to be his own, and in so doing, defeating the most powerful God-king in the world in the process, so that they'll be able to look back and remember and trust him. And so now in our story, where we're up to, from Egypt, God's people, they've made it to the edge of Canaan, the new garden promised to them by God, a place to be with God. And today's the day they are moving in together. Remember we said that the Bible's a bit like a romantic comedy? This is the, this is the, the, the day they're, they're moving in together. Living with, other, living with other people is quite interesting. I remember when I moved into a share house. That was a rude shock. I wonder if it was a rude shock when my parents had me and I made life difficult. But like, you, you have to deal with people's quirks, right? Like their preferences. Do you remember your first few weeks of being married and being like, whoa look on their face when they saw the state of your room or your office, either because of neatness or because of mess, you, you find out that you have preferences that you didn't know you had when someone encroaches over them, don't you? You have to deal with other people's irrational ways that they want things done while yours make perfect sense. And it's harder if you've ever had housemates or maybe even family members that you don't trust, Right? That, then all of a sudden it's eggshells and it's care and it's, it's difficult. We're about, they're about to move in together. Remember their history? Now, when they're doing that, Moses, you remember the guy who led them out of Egypt, took them to, to, to Mount Sinai to get these words from God? Well, Moses now, he's an old bloke. He was already an old bloke. He was 80. Now he's a really old bloke. And he narrates the story so far. They've been 40 years traveling through the wilderness to get to Canaan. And it's not the first time. This isn't the first time. They've been here before. Do you remember the story about how the, 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 the spies went into the land and they said, oh, the land looks really good, but gee, they're big. Like they're, they're like basketball players, these guys. They're all giants. They're tall. Uh, I don't think we can take them. And they don't trust God and then they end up not going in. Moses reminds them, hey, you remember how that happened? That's part of our story too. Uh, and do you remember how when we were coming out of Egypt, you started complaining, God hates us. This wandering through the wilderness, eating free food, that's, oh, gee, I'm just getting so bored of this manner and of this quail and of this. And, and, and they feel like God only rescued us from Egypt because he hates us and wants us to go through this hard, bad time. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt that. If you've ever felt like, why did God, you know, bring me here to only to put me in this hard, bad time? God must hate me because look at what I'm going through. I don't know if you've ever felt that, but they, are, they were feeling that. 
But, but if I remember, if, as, we, as we are thinking about this story from the very start, it's set up, God is good, bad guy convinces the, the girl that God's not good, he's actually not a good guy, and so the relationship sours. Here we're seeing, oh no, they don't trust him, do they? They don't trust that he's good. They actually think that he hates them. They don't think that he loves them. So how is it going to work once they're in a new garden? The reason it didn't work last time was because they didn't trust that he loved them, that he was good and he wanted to give them good things. And now they're like, oh, he hates us. This is a nervy beginning. They're spooked. They're scared. I mean, this is an interesting thing. It's 40 years on, right? Uh, this is the, the very first couple of verses, verse 2 and 3 of Deuteronomy 11. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb, Mount Sinai, to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road to get to where they are on the edge of the land. And yet, time discrepancy, in the 40th year, right? It's taken them 40 years to make an 11-day journey. God's, they, they, they've been wandering, probably in many days. Maybe, maybe parts of your whole life have felt like that kind of wandering away from God, not walking with God, God not taking you anywhere. You don't know where you're going. But now they're here, the eve of this new possibility. And God speaks to Israel through his servant Moses. And Moses says to them, hey guys, I've got the word. I'm not going in. I'm not going to get to go in. I've blown it. So don't you blow it. I want this to work out. Don't do it. And so he gives them the Sermon of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, the book, it's a, it's a sermon. Well, it's a couple of sermons from that Moses gives. And it's him saying, look, I'm not going to be there. I'm going to be there to mediate between you and God. Don't blow this. And here's the message for God's people so that when they're with him, they live with him. They don't destroy and blow the relationship. And so Moses gives them what he, what, what, what's called a, a second law, a second telling of the law. That's just what Deuteronomy means. Deutero means second. Uh, nomos in Greek is law. Deut- second law. And so he, he preaches in the early chapters, in chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, 12. Um, he says, these are the rules that God gave you. These are the rules that God gave you at Mount Sinai. These are the rules God gave you at Mount Sinai. These are the Ten Commandments. And it's interesting because they're not actually all the same as the ones in Exodus. Lots, lots of them are different. Lots of them are the same, but they kind of, kind of, kind of could have been either been expanded or slightly changed. It's Moses applying the words from God, the Sinai revelation, for a new context, a new situation. Life in the land. You're going to be living together now. It's different than when you're dating and you're living apart. There's different rules. On the edge of this new life, here is how you live for God now. Take this advice because I don't want you to blow it. So what does he say? We, we, the middle section of Deuteronomy is really, it does feel like a whole bunch of do this is a whole bunch of instructions, a whole bunch of, of, of this is how you're going to live together. And, and the first thing, that there's kind of three things here. How are you going to relate to God? How are you going to relate to each other? And how are you going to relate to the land? Which kind of makes sense. If you stop and think about our storyline so far, do you, do you start to see how uh, this whole, everything is actually just a telling of the same story? Even though when you read through it, Deuteronomy, you wouldn't be thinking that. Now as we're going through it, I hope you're seeing the themes. It's about those three things. Hatred God, hatred each other, hatred the land. Now, first of all, God says, right, I want you to understand how you're going to treat me. If we're going to live together... You don't just get to treat me however you feel like. You don't just get to treat me however you feel like, says God. 
You need to relate to me, well, in one sense, like just any other person. Because you don't just treat all people the same, do you? Just however you feel like treating human beings. There's people who speak your language, and there's people who come from a completely different culture, and you don't treat them the same way. There's a different way you respect different kinds of people. There's a person who's your authority in the workplace, and a person who's your responsibility to take care of in the workplace, and you don't treat them the same. It would be wrong to do so. And so God puts the context in, he says. He says here, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Because that's who I am, that's who you are, you need to worship me where I tell you to. In this, in this, in this land, there's going to be one place. You don't just get to go up to any hill you like. This is not Rafferty's rules. You come to where I say, that's how I know you respect me. That's how I know you're going to honour the boundaries that I put into place. I am the great king. I remember like, remember that, that treaty we talked about, the classic sort of covenant treaties of the ancient world when a great king would rescue some people and then they'd sort of form this treaty to say, hey, now how are we going to work this out together? How, is it, how, is it, how are we going to live together and what's our duties to each other? Well, I mean, Moses was all over that. I mean, he was, uh, he was schooled in them from, from in, the, in the Egyptian courts. And, and, and that's what this, how this book is structured. This whole book of Deuteronomy actually is basically one of those treaties. And it says... I'm a great king who rescued you. Now, here's how I need to be treated by you. Now, specifics like this matter because God is not an impersonal force. He is a person. Now, he's much more than a person, of course, but he's not less than a person, right? He's not a, he's not a concept or an abstract thing that you can treat like a concept or an abstract thing, a subject to learn about. There's one place, and you do it there. Now, secondly, he says... You also need to be loyal to me. Oops, sorry. There's a further on there was the and and you can see there's this great blessing sort of that comes with it as he says this is what you're going to do when you're going to worship me in this place. Um, we're going to be blessed. But 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 here, oh, where are I? Where's six four? Oh no, I missed one. My apologies. I've only just missed out like I don't know maybe like the most famous verse of the whole Old Testament and the most important one that I needed up on the screen. My apologies. Deuteronomy six verse four, and you you will have heard this some of you. This is the the the, the Shema. The hear, O Israel, listen, and it's it's not just hear. It's you know you know when you you know when you you. You tell like uh, someone who's under your authority, it might be a child, it might be a student of yours at school, it might be um, someone. You say, "Could you just, could you just, just be quiet so I can just have a talk to this person?" And they don't, they don't stop and be quiet. And you say, "Are you listening to me?" And you don't like, you don't mean did your ears register the sounds and did it go into your brain and did you then make a decision about it? It's are you listening and responding appropriately? Are you are you obeying what I'm saying? Now, that's what this word here, when it says, hear, O Israel, it's not just, hey, listen up. It's no, 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 hear, Israel. Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. I am one. There's only one of me, and I am the only one. It means both of those things. I need you to be loyal to me, he says, as your great king. I saved you. I'm the God who rescued you. I'm that great king. We're in a relationship here. Like, you don't get to go worship other gods, not just because, like, I'm the best one and I'm going to give you the best results, but, but it's because something has happened that's brought us into relationship. It's unfaithfulness for you to do that. 
it's, it, he, he's not saying, well, because I'm the prettiest girl in the room, you shouldn't go flirting with other girls. He's saying, no, no, I, I married you. Something happened that made us bound together. I am Yahweh, your God. What happened? I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And you shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Jimmy the Philistine over there, he doesn't have to do that. He's not Jewish. I didn't rescue him and his family. He doesn't owe me what you owe me. But to the Israelites, he says, you do. I want to bless you, by the way. Stick with me. Stick with me. Now, it's interesting here that if you do get managed to find, just throw up Deuteronomy 6.4 in one of those things, you can, you can edit one of them and stick it up there for me. That's great. Um, because it does say here, love Yahweh your God. And it's interesting. That's the most famous verse. The Jews would say this, pray this, morning and evening every day. Love. Not not obey, though they can, God instructs them to obey him later. Not understand me, though he instructs them to do that later. Not fear him and respect me, though he instructs them to do that later. Though he commands all those things, the Shema, the, the one here, O Israel, this is it. This is the thing. It's actually love. And it's sort of understandable that he needs to tell them this because actually these guys, if you think about it, the 40 years has passed. This is the adults of this generation are a different generation than the ones who came out of Egypt. He's reminding them of their family history. You are a people. You're not just your generation as if you get to make up your own things in your generation. No, you're a part of the people. You're part of the line. I rescued them and sort of, you know, genetically, relationally, like, you know, maybe you were in your mother's body at this point in time it's in some sort of way, even if just in the ovaries. You were there. I rescued you out of Egypt, God says, to these people who, are not, who were not born at the time. He's got to remind them. He's saying, look, I understand you don't know this. You don't know how powerful I am. I've got to remind you what happened. I get that. I mean, you know, you weren't there in Egypt. I mean, why would you know? But, but now I have rescued you. I've made you abundant and you're about to enter this land and you've got to understand who I am and how I've been to you, what your history with me is. And therefore, you've got, I want to tell you how we're going to work together. And he gives them this comprehensive set of laws that Moses applies from God's revelation at the mountain to this new situation so that you'll be filled with good. How are we going to relate? You've got to love me with your whole heart. You've got to fear me. You've got to obey me. You've got to listen to me. You've got to pay attention to me. But chief, is it's love. Love for God. It's a, it's a really deep thing to have for such a, an entity that we think of as abstract. Or at least our world does. And somehow, somehow or another that absorbs into the way we talk and think about God. Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 13. And now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God ask of you but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today? But the last bit is why? Why? For your own good. Now, I don't know who you answered for some of those questions, like who's someone that you would, who's someone that you fear, who's someone that you might listen to, who, I can't remember what the questions even were, who's someone, what, what kind of person do you tend to love? But God says, actually, I'm the kind of person you do all of those things to. I'm not just the kind of person you're scared of because they're this distant principal figure and they've got, they've got power over you at, at school. 
but I am, but, but actually I, I do want that kind of respect. But I'm also this person who's really close to you and has rescued you and has got history with you and I've walked with you every day of your life and I raised you and I've given you every bit of food you've ever had and I love you and I want you to feel that kind of like, just like, just like mum, that kind of, oh, just given me so much. I want that too. I am all these different things to you because I am God. And that ultimately, love, fear, respect, honour, obedience, attention, joy and thankfulness, all of these things are worship when we put them together. And, the, and God says, actually, I am, I'm the kind of being that actually deserves that because that's what I've been to you. Not because I'm demanding it. If you just understand, understand your relationship history with me, Israel, he says, that's, that's who I am to you. That would be the right response. Just be that with me in the land and my goodness, watch the blessings flow. It'll be Eden and more. Land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be so good. He secondly says, not just how to relate to him, he also tells them how to relate to each other. Now, I am going for 17. I'm just going to let you guys do it. You're going to get me to Deuteronomy 17. I've got, the, I've got, I've got one that's got Deuteronomy 17 there. Um, and he says here that, that the way that you relate to each other is actually not as greaters and lessers, masters and slaves. The king, the prophets, the priests are all actually meant to be brothers. Here's the instructions that, that Israel is given for a king. When you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it. And you say, let's set a king over us like all the nations around us. Yeah, like all the nations around us. That sounds really good when you're meant to be distinctive and different. But anyway, let it go. Uh, when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he's to write for himself a, on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. He's got a handwrite out of Moses' whole sermon, the whole of Deuteronomy. Then it is to be with him. He's got to keep it on him. And that, like, it's not like in your phone, you know, like, like this, is, this is a scroll. This is quite awkward. And he's to read it all the days of his life. So that he may learn to revere Yahweh his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and those decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. You see, the way Israel's meant to be is actually, it's not like the other nations. When you want a king like the other nations, make sure your king's not like the other nations. It's basically what God's saying. It's not that one guy has the divine right of rule over you. We can have a king, but you all are made in my image. You're all sons of God, male and female, just like in the garden. It's an egalitarian society, this Israel place. Not priests, prophets, kings, they're all under the law, under God, as you can see this king needs to be, but none elevated above his brothers and sisters. That's how you to relate to each other in my nation, says God. But lastly, also, there's a special love here for the aliens and strangers, and it's been often noted by scholars as they go through Deuteronomy, this special love and care for the outsider that sort of hints at something coming later in the story. Lastly, how to relate to the land, how to relate to God, how to relate to each other, how to relate to the land. There are rules even for the Sabbaths so that the land has its rest. They're actually to take care of the land and the world. They're patch that God's given them. They're gardeners again. They're back in Eden. You're meant to work it and keep it and take care of it. This is a part of it. God's not a 
God's not sort of like a virtual God where like I'm just going to give you sort of uh, kind of these ideas and you can just get on with life, but actually how you live in your embodied place and your practicalities of life and whether you care for the dirt that's around you doesn't matter. doesn't seem to be this God. The dirt matters. From it you came to it you'll return and it's yours and you ought to care for it. Now, how, how, how do we interpret sort of these laws to Old Testament Israel? Um, one way that I think you sometimes see people who aren't Christians compare them is they compare them to modern laws written for different times. And they'll say, hold on, doesn't this look a bit backwards? Doesn't this look a bit not like what we would, we would think is good? Does God think that's good? Does God think slavery is good? And I think that's the wrong comparison to make. Because there's different specifics for different reasons, for different contexts. I mean, there are laws in the Old Testament that were liberating for women hugely. Like the laws against casual divorce. It provided safety and dignity. Whereas in our day and age, the same law might be kind of thought of as quite entrapping. Because the law wasn't written for our day and age. The law was written for the day and age where if you didn't have a family to be attached to as a woman, you were probably going to die. The law's written for a context, and it brought life and blessing in that context. And we can tell that, that God is happy for his law to be applied different ways in different contexts. How? Well, Moses does it, because he preaches one law at Sinai, then preaches a very different command, some of them contradictory, in the sense that oh, he says, do this, and then he says, do something different, come when you're in the land. When it's an application of the same thing to a different context, where a different thing makes sense. Brings life. The life that God is so determined to bring his people. So laws protecting the rights of slaves that in our day might be thought of as oppressive and backward because they involve slaves. But in a world where slavery is a given and it's a different means of delivering punishment than, say, prisons, which we have, which they didn't have prisons, by the way, and you wonder, hold on, if you actually lived in that society, which society would actually think the other one was more backward and barbaric? Anyway, not together. But the, the, the laws were life-giving and raised the level of justice. And, and so the right comparison is not these laws to our laws, but the, the, the comparison of these laws to the, to the law code of the Babylonians and the Egyptians and, and the Akkadians. And as you do that, you'll actually see a ridiculous elevation of men and women to the same station, a huge concern for justice absent from other places. God is raising the level of justice and fairness in his world as he gives this law. And that's the spirit of that law. And if you're thinking, hold on, do I, speak just trying to get us off like laws. Just, I just, just go with the spirit of law, not the letter of the law. Don't worry too much. What I'm trying to say is interpret them contextually like Jesus did. Stop and think about how brash this is for Jesus to have said, to the Pharisees, who are teachers of the law, and you know they're going to nail him if he gets it wrong. And he says when, one day when his, his disciples are walking through a field and they grab bits of grain and crumble it up and they're eating some grain on the Sabbath, like, whoa, 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 you can't do that. And Jesus says, hold on, what are you, what are you talking about? Do you remember that the, the, the Sabbath was made for man? It was designed to bring life? Do you know the story? Not just the one little section of it, do you know how it fits in? The Sabbath was made for man, for me, to give me life. And I'm letting my guys not starve, eating food, the very thing that God provides, even on the Sabbath. Man was not made to serve the rule. The rule was made to bring life to humanity. And that's the way that Jesus used and interpreted the law as well. Now, that said, there are some real specifics here. As you go through, you'll read it. You'll read some very interesting specifics 
not these two different types of cloth woven together. And I'm like, well, I think this is like 60% polyester and 40% cotton or something like that. Like, I, this, could be, this could be trouble. There, but, the, but, but back then, there were real specifics, and, and the specifics did matter because they were direct commands about that day. They were written for that time, for that context, and they made sense and brought life in that context. And so as God says, look, there's sometimes when you're not going to get why I did it, why I said it. Trust me. Respect me. Uh, like a housemate who ignores their housemate's sort of um, requests about, hey, could you just do this? Could we just do it this way? Could we work out some kind of system so that this, you, know, you don't leave KFC under the lounge room for, chair for like three weeks and then the place stinks like it did in my share house and Mel still went out with me. I don't quite know how that happened. But anyway, um, God says you need to listen to me on the specifics. They matter and they're real. At the same time as you can actually see that God's law is appropriately applied in different spaces at different times. Anyway, so, so we get to this, this big section of law, and then at the end, Moses gives them another sermon, and we get the story at the very end of, of how they receive this sermon and, and their, their moment of, but not actually doing it, entry into the land. We're here on the edge, and thus ends the sermon. Now, a very common issue for Christian people is asking, so what, what is the Old Testament Jewish law? Like, what's it for? What's it about? How does it apply to me? So is it, is it a reflection of God's character so that I know what he is like and therefore I'll know what to do? Is it the way to live to be happy? I just follow God's law, follow the rules and everything will be okay. Is it sort of like a, meant to be an indication of the way creation works and so how the world works generally so I know the principles and I don't go against the grain, sort of just do things in the right way, and therefore life will be better. I'll be happy. A way to help my life go well. Or is it God's standard by which he judges all humanity? This is it. This is what's true. These are, these are the rules. And, you know, like a judge in a law court, I've got the rules and I'm going to apply them. And we'll see if you match up. You might have heard of a bunch of different takes on the law and what it is, what it's for, and how it applies to you. I want to ask you a question, though. Have you ever wondered why there's so much story in law? You read the first five books of the Bible? This Deuteronomy, it's, 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 it starts with story. It's all about, hey, remember, I did this, and remember how we've got this relationship? Remember how I treated you in this way, and that's what happened? Particularly bringing them out of Egypt. See, the law is not like our statutes. In fact, the Jews regarded all of the first five books of the Bible as the law. That's what it was called, the Torah, the, in Hebrew, the, the instruction. The first five books are that, and that includes all of the st interesting stories at the start. And thus the law itself says, the law of God itself in the Old Testament says that the story that we're telling here is the context for the instructions and should be the thing that interprets the instructions. God himself says, story is how you're meant to interpret statute. I am Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That is why you remain, should remain faithful to me. So we have to listen to what God says the law is for. Now, what does he say? So Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 4, 5 to 7. I'm going to once again leave it with the guys at the back, much more competent than I am. The, the purpose of the law is still that of the promise to Abraham. Here we go. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as Yahweh my God commanded me, this is Moses speaking, 
so that you may follow them in the land you're entering to take possession of it. Why? Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely that great nation is a wise and understanding people. What if the nation is as great as to have their gods near them the way Yahweh our God is near us whenever we pray to him? Do you see what's going on? The whole purpose of the law is it's it's in the story. It's to fulfill the promise to Abraham that God is going to use Israel and their trust in him to, to, to magnetically bring in the nations who are like, man, their God is with them. He talks to them. He connects with them. And look at look at the society that has created, the beauty and the love and the justice and the look at the wisdom and insight that's there. I want in. I want the kind of Edenic style blessing that these guys have got. And so through Israel, the whole world would be blessed in that way. That's the purpose of the law. That's what God says the purpose of the law is. God says, it's my covenant between a God who rescues and provides for people and the people are ones who are rescued and provided for. So is, it a, is, the, is the, law, the law a reflection of God's character? Yeah. Is it the way that creation works and so don't go against don't go against the grain. Well, kind of, yeah, but you've got to make sure you're working. You've got to make sure you remember that this law was set at this time for this context, and then Moses changed it here, and then even Jesus said, well, now, now all foods are clean, so go for it, and Jesus changed it for a new context, and careful about the way you do that. It's not always this, any, any instruction you read in the Bible isn't always going to be for you. Is it God's standard by which he judges all humanity? Oh, not quite. The law reveals right and wrong in many ways. I mean, Paul talks about it saying, I wouldn't have known what coveting was if God said, hey, don't covet your neighbor's stuff. And so it helps us see how and why sin is destructive. And yet, in Romans, God's judgment for those outside the law is not to be judged under the law, but to be judged apart from the law. They'll be judged in accordance with the, 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 sort of the, the natural things that they should have known just from creation itself. Is the law the way to live life the same for all time? Well, Moses didn't think so. He changed rules between Sinai and Canaan. Jesus doesn't think so. He changed rules between the Old and the New Testament. In fact, he got angry at the Pharisees for, for kind of doing both, for, for not interpreting the rules um, in light of the purpose God gave for them. But also then, when they wanted it, when it suited their purposes, then twisting it too much into what, that, what suited them. See, the right way to understand a text, it's, its intention, the heart of the author, is to understand what's being said as a product of its context. It's written to a recipient with a purpose. And so when we hear the message of the... When we read it in the context of the story, we hear the message of the author more truly so that we can more rightly react to that message, even if it's in a slightly different way than the person back in the story themselves had to rightly react to that same message. This message is for the nation's salvation and the blessing of God's people. When they see the wisdom of God's, Israel's God through their law, they'll come in and find blessing. Now, have you, have you had, had people discussing about uh, this, this question? Uh, are we still under the law? Have people ever asked that in Christian circles? Are we still, do we have to obey the law? Um, one way that I've responded to that question, when someone says, look, am I still under the law as a Christian? Uh, uh, particularly if I know the person. Like, if I know them, I definitely say this. I say, well, still, what do you mean still under the law? I, I didn't know you were Israeli. And like, what do you mean? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not Jewish. I'm like, oh, but you said still under the law. 
like as if he'd been under the law for, for, for at some point. I'm like, yeah, well, when God originally gave the law. I'm like, well, hold on, but didn't you read the law? <laughs> Who entered the law? Well, when did you, when were you rescued out of Egypt with a mighty hand under the, out of the slavery under Pharaoh and brought into the promised land through Moses? Like, where did that happen? A covenant is a contract. It happens when you sign it. It's between specific people. And these kind of contracts happen when a great king rescues an oppressed people. They're bound with a treaty, and the great king rescued them, and therefore they've got to negotiate how are we going to treat this great king who's rescued us and, and, and praise him for this great salvation that he's brought us. You sure you're not Jewish? Because if you are, then you'd be a part of that. And if they say, no, don't be stupid, I'm not Jewish, I'd say, well, then if, that, if you're not, then you have no standing within this law. You're not one of the people he was given to. So then what is the point of this chapter of the story? For us. If, you, if, you, if you're Jewish, it'll be totally different. But if you're not, well, see, the question this text asks is, if, moving into the gar- if we're about to move into the garden together, if the romantic comedy is starting to get real and we're going to see how they get on when they're in each other's space and you get in the kitchen and you turn around and bump the other person and how that's going to work, How's it going to work? The answer is, if Israel wholeheartedly listens to God, it'll go well. It'll go so well. There will be food. There'll be milk, honey, blessing everywhere. In fact, Moses then, when when he's about to sort of send them into the land and hoping they go well, says, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. In fact, he actually gets them to go up and stand on these two mountains and the valley in between them. And then they have to like take turns yelling curses and blessings back to each other. This is the blessing that will come if you obey God. And they're like yelled back. And this is the curse that will happen if you don't obey God. And they have this sort of big shouting match. What are they going to do? What's going to happen? Sorry. Thing is, we kind of get a, we've got a commentator, Moses, and he's a little bit skeptical. And come forward to chapter 30. Where are we? Not that one, not that one, not that one. Here we go. Deuteronomy 30. This is Moses. Moses, the Moses who didn't make it himself. When all these blessings and curses I've set before you, you can see that he's at the end of the sermon. When I've, these blessings and curses I've set before you come on you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. And, and when, what? Hold on. What? When the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. Whoa, hold on. I thought, he was bringing, I thought we were moving in together. When God kicks you out of home, like this is not something that you want in your prenuptial agreement. Like when you, when you cheat on me and I kick you out, this is... When, not if, when. Now, you got, I mean, you got to understand, Moses has walked with these people for 40 years. He knows what they're like. He's seen it. He heard, he, he was the guy they came to, whinging, God must hate us. That's why he brought us out into Egypt. He, he gets it. But it's when. This is, oh, this does not look great. Until, next verse. Where are we? Nah. Yeah, here we go. Middle there. When you, when you and your children return to Yahweh your God, turn back, repent, and obey Him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything that I command you today. When you do that, then Yahweh your God will restore your fortunes. 
He'll have compassion on you. Gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if, even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there God will gather you. Even if you've been the worst of sinners, from there God promises he will bring you back. He'll bring you to the land that belongs to your ancestors. You'll take possession of it. He'll make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will, will circumcise your hearts. He'll do surgery. He'll get rid of that cancer that seems to be so stuck in there and to the hearts of your descendants and so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and finally get back to the thing he's been hoping for since Eden and live with all the fuller sense of what the word life means. All you've got to do is say sorry, guys. That's it. That's proper sorry, though. Did you notice? When you turn to him with your whole heart, a real sorry. None of this sorry that I'm going about. No, no, no. A whole-hearted sorry. No matter how bad, no matter how far, all we'll have to do is come and say sorry and mean it. Look, if you think the God of the Old Testament is a salty, angry, ungracious, vengeful tyrant, if you, in short, if you're Richard Dawkins or other people who, like, you haven't read the story with all due respect, and in terms of your literary ability, it's not a lot of respect. You have not read the story. You don't understand what he's doing. You don't get his character, how he has acted towards these people and how he treats them and what he promises them. He marries himself to them and says, it doesn't matter how, how hard you rebel against me and how hard I have to punish you in return. It doesn't matter. You say, sorry, I'll bring you back. One little application for us. If you're on the edge of the land, you don't know what's ahead. That's where they're at. They're on the edge of a new thing. They don't know what's ahead. A lot of uncertainty, not sure where they're going in life. I mean, God seems to think that he knows. He's given them promises that he knows what's happening in their life. He knows what he's doing with them. But, 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 but you might not know, and you might feel like it's a blank, black box of a thing you're about to walk into. Maybe you're not certain about what lies ahead for you. God says... My plan is actually to bring life and blessing. My plan is to be good to my people. That's what I'm like. It's what I do. I provide. And, you're like, and you might think and say to God, but, but God, I don't feel that. And God's like, yeah, I know. That's what I'm telling you. I understand this. Uh, I, and, and you're like, but God, I don't see how. I don't see the trajectory. And God's like, I know. Neither did the people standing on the land about to walk into Canaan. They didn't see it either. Generation after generation, in situations, if you did the growth group on 1 Samuel and, 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 the, and the, the tour of the Ark of the Covenant through Philistia and the way that they decided, no, we, we can't have God fighting our battles for us. We need a king like the nations to fight our battles for us just after God won every single battle that he was in without a single human to help. They, in that moment, they didn't get it. It was so hard to trust God because I don't see what you're doing in my life. I don't understand why the suffering's here. I don't understand why my job's not like, like I want it to be. I don't understand why this suffering's here. I don't understand why that relationship's not working out. When I'm working really hard, they're working really hard, and we're trying to be really, really godly, and we're praying, and it's just not working out, and I don't understand what you're doing, God. And God's like, I understand. That's why. Why do you think I gave you these stories? Because they didn't understand that either. I want you to see the long game that I play. I want you to see where I bring them and what I do and how I act so that you can trust me when you don't see what I'm doing. If you're anxious and uncertain, 
because you don't see what God's doing or because you think you're so bad that you can mess it up. Deuteronomy 31 to 6. God has plans for life and for goodness and there is no place so far from him that he won't bring those to pass if we will turn to him with our whole heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I get anxious. I, I, I hate that I don't know what's happening next year with accommodation or, 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 or all the other things that, for, for what school that you guys go to. Or, or, or what, God, we, we have got so many different things in our life like, that are just so uncertain for us that we can't see, that we can't look forward and, 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 and control. And God, it doesn't, and, and we were, if, if only we sort of knew what you were doing and had that great sense of it, then we could walk into it with confidence and joy. But God, sometimes we, we can't see even what you're doing at all. In fact, I'm not sure that we ever can. It's rare and it's beautiful when it happens, but God, we... And yet, Father, you've actually spoken to us. And these stories are not just stories. That's you speaking to us, saying, Pete... Soul Church, my kids, look at my character. This is how I treat people. This is the kind of love that I have, and I want to bring them good. But God, it's, it's really hard for us, and we don't, we, don't, we don't always see it or feel it. Father, now help us to listen to your words. Father, by your Holy Spirit, change our hearts, circumcise our hearts, cut out the bits of us that fail to, to trust in you and want to run to sin instead. And Father, calm our anxious hearts so that rather than, um, rather than uh, maybe fearing you but not loving you, we would trust in your love and so we would be able to love you with our whole heart in return. Father, we ask this for ourselves, for all the Christians in Hobart and across the world. Father, we pray that we might be wholehearted towards you. We might love you and trust you and trust your goodness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.